0: Hello, and welcome to the DevThink Podcast with your hosts, Sean and... Nicola. And today we are uh, sharing with the listeners some of our personal pursuit of the craft of programming, development, and architecture. And that requires continuous learning, if you're interested in this thing as we are. And so today we're going to talk about a book called The DevOps cookbook that we have both begun to read, which partially was born thanks to another book called The Phoenix Project, which is a novel we both read and both got a lot of inspiration and insight out of, which makes us both very excited to read The DevOps Handbook. Now, we could talk about The Phoenix Project for probably 45 minutes at least, but we're not trying to—we uh, you know, want to get onto The DevOps Handbook because this is the nonfiction uh, version that has the real meaty points in it. So we're just going to do a quick overview, and Nicola would like to share a blurb about the Phoenix Project.
1: Indeed. Um, yeah. Like, first things first, an awesome book. Awesome, awesome, awesome book. I be- Not I believe. I think uh, I'm certain that every person in IT should read this, including the PMs, the higher ups, you know, everybody. QA, everything, I everybody.
0: Want from the CEO. Down to the kitchen staff,
1: definitely, because it's it's unbelievable. And I mean, the fact that it's novella, you can read it as a, you know, nice little story to scare you to death. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so I'm actually gonna read the excerpt from this the DevOps handbook uh, about the Phoenix project, uh, and it actually goes like this. So the Phoenix project is a novella. That follows an IT develop, IT leader who faces all the typical problems that are endemic in IT organizations, being an over budget, behind the schedule project that must get to the market, you know, yesterday in order for the company to survive. And he experiences these catastrophic deployments, problems with availability, security, compliance and so forth. Right. And like ultimately he and his team use DevOps principles and practices to overcome those challenges, helping their organization win in the marketplace. And basically, as one of the comments or reviews on Amazon said, uh, there is not a character in the Phoenix project that I don't identify with myself or someone I know in real life, not to mention the problems faced and overcome by those characters. I cannot like... How do you say I would plus one that one in uh, to infinite into infinity, right? Because it's so true. Like, honestly, you can I would actually be very surprised if you read this book and you say, This does not sound familiar, this is not my organization, or something like that.
0: Yeah, one of our coworkers I won't name because I didn't ask permission. Uh I said, Have you read the Phoenix Project? And he said, Yes, and I have been in every one of those meetings, uh, there were meetings that took place during the book that the book is not a description of a series of meetings. Just wanted to make that clear. It's interesting, but there are meetings where this guy who is thrust into this role finds himself in a position where it's literally impossible to make everyone happy. So he has to make a hard decision on what is more important and then goes into the meeting and is basically told, no, too bad, make it happen anyway. And, uh yeah, it's a lot of, not a lot of fun. So, in the very end of the book, one of the characters says to one of the other characters, you should write a book about this, and you should call it the DevOps Cookbook. And, interestingly, the book is the DevOps Handbook, not the DevOps Cookbook. I don't know why they uh, did the different title. It would have probably worked equally well. But... It exists, it's in paper, and it's by the same authors as the Phoenix Project, or at least a few of them are the same. And it is trying to, in a more, I don't know, structured or classroom-like or more organized way, give you the principles. Because in the Phoenix Project, there was a character who was kind of like the wise one who came in and gave advice and mentioned things and quoted other books and mentioned other authors and talked about certain terminology, but he kind of came in to help out the main character. So this would be as though that character was told to stop giving it to me piece by piece, just write it all down so I can read it instead of, you know, doing the Socratic method with me.
1: Yeah. Although to be fair, his way was probably a better way because he was learning himself on the spot basically because as he was taking him through the you know uh, places where he worked and everything but yeah Uh, anyways I'm very excited about this book because as I said that is a novella right and you know you're kind of like think okay sure that can work in a novella but since this book came out and it's actually stating that it will show all the principles how to actually implement them in our, you know, software development world. I'm very excited to, you know, go through this.
0: Yeah. So let's start. I am I have taken some notes and I assume that you have too. And we'll just try to run through as much as we can in a short amount so, of time because we don't want to make this a two hour podcast. Exactly.
1: And we have to mention that because, I mean, basically what we're doing, we're taking chapter per chapter and we're discussing them. And in this particular show episode, Uh, we are going to cover
0: the first part. Right, which I think is uh, the first four chapters.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: All right. So uh, one of the, the premises that it's based on is about the traditional separation between dev and ops. Not that there are two different groups doing it, but that the people in those groups are in opposition, either there's the constant fight that devs being forced like get out as many features as quickly as possible so they're not incentivized to make sure it's rock solid and stable they need to get it out and ops is tasked with the site can't go down you've got to keep it stable you got to keep it up and running so they're naturally in conflict because developers are throwing things over the wall as they put it to ops and basically from that perspective perspective of ops devs are trying to just break stuff as much as they can. And from the spec- perspective of devs, ops is trying to slow them down with their annoying procedures and stupid rules as much as possible. So and then?
1: <laughs> yeah. and So then. as a
0: result, as little as possible gets done.
1: Exactly. And then on top of that, you add the QA and the InfoSec, as in secure uh, informational security, right? And then you have yet another two... Groups of people that are fighting each other instead of working together.
0: Yep, and the and businesses seem to see um, op- uh, development as a very important part of what they do, especially if they're a software company. And there are also quotes where many people say all companies are software companies, whether they understand it or not. It doesn't matter what you do. So it's obvious that developers writing code and adding features and fixing bugs is valuable. To the business and needs to be invested in and needs to be prioritized. But the ops aspect is considered to be like, you know, it's just foundation, it's just something that's there and that happens, and it's not necessarily given respect and resources that it needs in order to really do the best job for the company. So the idea of DevOps is not first of all, DevOps is not a role or job description. It doesn't mean get rid of the ops guys and have the developers deploy their own code it means dev and ops have to work together in a infinite feedback loop to achieve the same goal together
1: i definitely agree and i very much liked the quote when uh they say that devops isn't about automation just as astronomy isn't about telescopes mm. yeah and yeah. also like uh i had this note here of uh basically what you said that basically every industry and company that is not bringing software to their core of the business are sooner or later going to be disrupted.
0: Yeah. And so to, instead of saying what DevOps is not, which it's not, you know, having developers deploy their own code or making the ops guys program. It's, it's also not about segregation of duty. What it is, Is if you take, for example, something like a security audit, you would think that once a year or when a major client comes on or whatever, the government comes in and audits you, someone comes around with a clipboard and they check your databases to make sure that you're patched, to make sure that people don't have passwords that don't, you know, belong, don't need them to do their jobs and things like that. But what the DevOps, uh, I guess, theory or hypothesis uh, tells you is that actually testing QA auditing, security, all that stuff is every single person's job, every step of the way, every day. So you shouldn't say, hey, once a year, we're going to check our security. The developer should be thinking about security when they write the code. QA should be thinking about security when they test the code. Ops should be thinking about security when they deploy the code. And instead of saying, hey, we had a problem and we know what the problem was. So if we add this auditing process, or if we add this extra QA step, We can catch it in the future. That just adds more and more and more steps to the pipeline that gets from feature to the customer. So what they're saying is, no, never add steps. Put the solution at the point of the problem. If it's a problem that developers can create, make sure part of the developer's process is to watch for and not make those mistakes. Don't add a safety net at the end of the chain where it's now gone through Three or four steps. It's gone through QA. It's gone through a staging environment, and then it hits this safety net. And now we got to go start all over again at the beginning. Keep short cycles, and implement the fixes where the problems come from.
1: Indeed, agreed. And so, actually, this whole you know DevOps uh, isn't the new thing in like our software development world. It actually has its roots in the lean and it comes from manufacturing where like uh, I believe that Toyota was the first that came up with this and they implemented their own kind of like let's say procedures that helped them quote unquote win in the marketplace and they had some very you know interesting things where so one for example they had on an assembly line right they had this, uh I can't remember how they called it. Uh, the Andon cord. Andon, exactly. Toyota Andon cord. And so basically something happened, right? And every employee was encouraged to pull this cord if something happened. Whereas if you think about it, you know, the whole production stops. But that was in the long run, a very good investment because they were able to learn on the spot. But we're actually kind of like getting ahead of ourselves because yeah, I uh, definitely
0: want to talk about the end on cord. That's one of the two things that I have to talk about in the course yes. of this. But, I mean, since you brought it up, we might as well uh, finish it. But I want to give a little more background from the manufacturing perspective in which if there's an assembly line and there are people doing many different jobs along that assembly line and a piece of work, in this case, say a partially assembled vehicle, comes down the assembly line and there's any problem like – they re- the car comes to them, and a part that they have to then adjust was not properly assembled by the previous team, or the piece has a defect, or their tool doesn't work, or anything. They have a limited amount of time, and the book mentions specifically 55 seconds. If they can fix it themselves in 55 seconds, swap out the part, adjust something, whatever, you're cool. If not, you pull the on cord, and what that does is it stops the entire line full shutdown. And then they have a concept of what they call a swarm, which I found this to be very exciting. And I'm looking forward to seeing how we can take advantage of this ourselves. And what a swarm is, is say so you have 10 people doing 10 different jobs and one person pulls the cord, all those 10 people stop what they're doing. And they all swarm on the problem. They all fix it together. They do not do a workaround in the short term. They do not say, we'll fix it later. They do not say it's not my job. They all get together, every single person, and they all understand the problem, and it gets fixed. And that way, you know, you don't have the case where one guy figured it out and fixed it, and then next time it breaks, only Nikola know how to fix that thing. Every single person on the line now owns part of that solution. You have institutional knowledge. And you can't there, – there's a process. They, they use the, the flow, right? There's a flow, and – if you have a bottleneck or a problem in one part of the line, you, it is not acceptable for other parts of the business to try to keep running because it's artificial, right? Your your one spot, your uh, – what do they call it? Your constraint is the only place worthy of anyone's attention at any given time because any other improvements or fixes or productivity is all an illusion.
1: Yeah, this is very good. This swarming also uh, – I was very excited about it as well because basically it shifts kind of like the perspective of, hey, you know what, that team screwed up to, oh, no, an error happened. Let us to ke- come together and solve it together, right? Because in the end, if something happens, we all uh, go out of business and not just that team, you know? Yeah, I saw so a really I funny much-
0: cartoon I saw a cartoon a few weeks ago that's totally relevant. There are some people in a boat and the boat is sinking and the people by the hole are sitting there trying to bail the water out. And the people at the other end of the boat are going, I'm sure glad the hole's not on our end.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) And we have to be fair and say that, and I bet that some of the listeners could, you know, maybe find themselves in that situation that there are companies that that kind of a thing happens sadly, but it definitely does.
0: Yeah, and one thing, and so the other thing I definitely wanted to get to before we run out of time, is something that rings 100% true to me and is probably going to ring true to everyone else, so I just got to bring it up. How does this sound as far as familiarity? There's a problem. There's not enough time to fix it, so you do a workaround, and you promise to fix things later, quote, when we have time. As a result, you end up with technical debt, little things become more difficult, which means all the work becomes slower. And when you do try to make changes, you end up breaking things because you're working on an ecosystem of software or foundation that is complex and flawed. So if you are a programmer and you've been doing this for any amount of time and you have not lived in that environment, call me. I got to know where you worked and how they're doing their thing because I have never not seen that.
1: Indeed. Indeed. And I mean, they may start off with very good intentions. We all do, of course, but it just piles up, right? Because honestly, you cannot keep up <laughs> with new features and if you're not refactoring it. Anyways, I want to talk about something that, um, I mean, listeners, if you'll go into this a bit more, you will come across the term of the value stream, which it's kind of like a fancy term just for the thing which means the value stream for some company is... From the point of where the let's say requirement is acquired to the point when this new feature, whatever, is delivered to the customer and is working out. And you will also come across the term um, lead time, where basically lead time, this is very simple to explain. The lead time is when the ticket, if we're talking about you know any ticket management system that you have, uh, when the ticket enters the system. To the time when the ticket is actually not only done, but in production and working. And the customer is happy with it. That's very important. And you will also hear um, a term of cycle time, or as they call it, task time or process time. This kind of this term gets butchered a bit because at some places they call it cycle time, sometimes they call it task process time. In this current book, they call it process time. And what is that? That is when you actually started working on the ticket and when it got finished, finished, as in as I said before, when it got to production and the customer is happy with it. And anyways, this, this book, this first part outlines uh, the th- so-called three ways. And the first way is the so-called flow. The second one is feedback. And the third one is continual learning and experimentation. And so now I'm going to focus a bit on the this whole flow part. Well, where, we've got about
0: a minute oh, left, so... Yeah, you know
1: what? We're actually so I was thinking uh there's no way of us to you know, you know like do it so quickly. So, I am going to try let's let's do this. Let's try to finish in like 5 minutes, okay?
0: All right. Well, the, I don't think the authors would appreciate appreciate us uh, giving away all the book and I like the idea that we're going to give some of our points we're really excited about and let the listeners read it for themselves cuz we can't possibly do it justice regardless. You are
1: true. You are correct uh I would only have, like, I would want to mention a few things from this flow, whereas you can't know what you're working on if you don't make your work visible. Plain and simple, what is this? You have to have a certain, uh, you know, somebody may like Kanban boards, somebody's gonna do it, you know, the scrum and whatever, but whatever you're working on has to be somewhere, you know, somebody has to know that you're working on something. Uh, Also very important part here, which comes from the Kanban system is that you have to limit your work in progress because the context switching, the multitasking and all of that stuff is totally bad. And I mean, it's scientifically proven that it's bad. So if you limit your work in progress, you will only on the long run do a very good thing for your organization And mention Uh,
0: optimize for flow over features, which the shortest way to say it is you want to maybe, it's better to deploy every day or every hour or on a schedule rather than deploy once a particular feature is fully completed. Because if you do it on a regular basis in set size chunks, as Nicola was saying, limit your work in progress, that means you're not going to have... A long period of silence followed by a huge chunk of code for code review and a huge chunk of new features for QA and then a huge deployment that could break production. It's better to deploy piece by piece, even if it's unfinished and even if it's turned off by a flag that the customer can't see it or use it. It's better to do that and deploy 10 times a day than it is to deploy once after three months this huge thing, which is probably going to break and have to be rolled back anyway.
1: True, this basically comes down to the... um, So how do you do it, right? Well, the thing is, you have to, they call it, you have to reduce the batch sizes, meaning you can't have one ticket which lists all the stuff that you have to do. No, this ticket has to be broken down on multiple sub-tickets, call them whatever you like, right? And so that you have something to focus on and deliver that. And as Sean was saying, you know, delivered on a constant daily basis. Uh, also, like, so not to go too deep into it, then we go to this second part, uh, second way, which is feedback. Very simply here, um, feedback should be immediate, meaning as you're deploying, like hopefully daily, Right. If something went wrong, you immediately want to know what went wrong. Why? Because the, then you can immediately go in and fix it. And of course, very important part that I read here, and I totally agree. Uh, if something goes wrong, the finger pointing, blaming, whatever, helps nobody. What helps is get together, acknowledge that something happened, acknowledge, find a way how to solve it, document that so that the next time it is less probable to happen. Hopefully it won't happen again, but, you know, things happen. We're the devs. And like something finally that uh, this guy was doing the research and so everybody else started, you know, applying these DevOps things. And I mean, the lean kind of like from the manufacturing. And then they saw that other, you know, companies weren't so successful as Toyota. And what he found was that they were missing one key part of all this this let's say new kind of like way of thinking and it is the continual learning and experimentation meaning dear devs and i cannot stress this enough we have to, i mean we are here for life like you know life long learning and if you're not improving it's not like you're standing still you are actually degrading so basically what they're saying try like invest at least, I mean, at least invest at like 10 minutes of your day. Hopefully you will do more, but at least some amount of time invest in trying to become better. And not only that, but only also the current code base that you have, invest some time to pay off technical debt. Because as a, as an actual debt, if you just keep, keep it off, I mean, if you don't address it, it will eat you <laughs> and that's yeah. unfortunately sad but that's the way it is and uh, also like one more thing that they kind uh, of like say here is the do the postmortems meaning if something went really bad, get together, figure out what was wrong, but not in the terms of oh yeah now we're gonna blame that guy because he screwed up everything no try to figure out how can you prevent yourselves? from doing that same mistake again. And like, honestly, like this whole first, I mean, my view on this, this whole first part is very promising because (laughs) it structures things nicely of uh, what actually goes wrong. So I'm really excited to read onward and see kind of like the tools and what we have in order to get there where we want to get.
0: Yeah, and since you mentioned uh, you don't want to have blame a couple of times, you don't do that because you, you know, cause it's the nice thing to do, which it is because people will make mistakes, but you do it because if you don't do that, people will hide and cover up mistakes. And as an organization, you will not grow and learn and you will have problems.
1: True. And that is exactly also what they say, because you, you know, that organization where, you know, the boss comes in and he yells and everything, that's not a healthy organization. And As you said, people will not be... So they will actually be afraid to say when something is wrong. And on the long run, that company will fail, period.
0: Yep. All right. So we've gone over our allotted time. Not too bad, but we'll end it here. And you can have any last word you want, Nicola.
1: Uh, Nothing. Uh, (laughs) I mean, nothing. Read the book. Uh, Stay tuned. Stay tuned, guys, for uh, next week. It's uh, the second part where basically as the book says, is how to get started with this, you know, DevOps thing. So stay tuned and till next time, see you guys. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the DevThink podcast. To reach us for comments, show suggestions, and other feedback, contact us at info at devthink. That's D-E-V-T-H dot I-N-K. Our intro music is by Rupa Deadweiler. No animals were harmed in the making of this podcast.